And so in this series, we want to approach some of the questions that you may have from the scripture. And so I'm going to invite you to take a copy of the scripture. Maybe you have one on your phone. That's fine. Just try not to be distracted by Candy Crush. Um, or I grab a grab a, a paper version in front of you. And today we're going to work through the Bible. And I'm just going to turn to a lot of different passages and try to help us understand what the Bible teaches about the question, what happens when I die? What happens when we die? But we're going to try to answer the quest, these questions um, throughout this series by looking at the Scripture. Because we believe these are God's revelation to us. These are foundational to us. Uh, these are authoritative for us. And so we're not going to ask so much, what do I want to be true? But what does God teach us in the Scripture by his son Jesus and by other inspired writers? What, what does he tell us? about what comes next. If you're interested more in our view of the Bible, we're starting a foundations class, um, and that starts on Super Bowl Sunday, February 2nd. Um, don't worry, it's not at 6 p.m. or anything like that. It's before this gathering. So like at 8.45 to 9.45 for six weeks. And this is like a the foundations class is going to, it's probably going to take a few years, but kind of systematically, step by step, Teach through, and this is a teaching opportunity, a learning opportunity, um, of what do we believe. And foundationally, before I was thinking I was going to start with, who is God? What is God like? What are his attributes? And that kind of thing is, well, actually, we need to set the foundation of the scripture. That found, that to learn who God is and what God is like, we go to the scripture. Well, why, why should I care about what this says? And so this first section, uh, first module is going to be all about the Bible, about God's revelation to us. What do we believe about it? What are those inspiration and all of that? What does that mean? Why, why these books of the Bible? Why not other ones that you may or may not have heard of? Okay, so we're going to spend six weeks and the first six weeks, module one is going to be God revealed, God's revelation to us. We're going to talk about the doctrine of the scripture, if you will. Okay, so um, it's I'm aiming it as a kind of a beginner class, but it's not like, and so I've, we've even said in some of our materials, it's kind of for kids over 10, people over 10, um, but it's not going to be childish. So if you're an adult and you're like, oh, it's for 12-year-olds, you know what, it's probably will be foundational and helpful uh, for for many of us if we've not taken time to slow down and in a systematic way study some truth and so this is a teaching thing so when I speak here on Sunday mornings I'm primarily aiming at our heart what we love in that setting I'll be aiming at your head what you know okay so when we're teaching things we're usually focused either on the head, the heart, or the hand, right? What you know, what you love, or what you do. That that environment will be primarily about what you know. Here, we're really aiming primarily, usually, for what we love. What do we love? All right, so, if you have questions about afterlife, um, so back to the series here that we're starting, 
Uh, if you have questions, we'd love to interact with you on these que- questions. So what are the burning questions that you have about what happens after you die or after Jesus returns, whichever comes first? So we've listed a few of these questions that I'm going to answer in successive weeks. Next week, I'm going to try to answer the question, will God really send people to hell? Next week, or the week after, if I'm heavenly minded, can I be of any earthly good? That is, if I'm only ever thinking about heaven, am I actually going to do any good in this earth? Like uh, John Lennon, right, in his song, Imagine, Imagine There's No Heaven, Imagine... If how much good you'd do if you didn't believe in heaven. You would finally get down to work and do accomplish something good here on earth. I'm going to talk about why John Lennon is wrong. And uh, the 26th of January, is heaven just a never-ending church service? Because if it is, it doesn't sound like heaven. Uh, so what is what is heaven like? What is the eternal heaven? The new heavens and the new earth like? And then on February 2nd, Super Bowl Sunday is going to be Q&A, which is not on the spot like, hey, what questions? Let me field them. It's in advance. You submit questions. So starting anytime, we have a form on our website. You can email me. What are the questions you have about this big old topic? And we'll try to address some of the common questions that uh, that still remain. But... As we come to the afterlife, we often think, as the subject of the afterlife, we often think, man, it's so mysterious. And it is in some ways. It's mysterious. We don't quite know. And often this verse that I've read at the, at the opening, you know, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no has, nor has entered into the heart of anyone what God has prepared for those who love him is like, well, see, the Bible says we have no idea. The Bible says we have no clue what's next, so let's not bother talking about it. But as I read, the verse continues where God says, the Paul says, but God has revealed these things to us by his spirit. So what he's actually teaching is the very opposite of how that verse is often misquoted, taken out of its context. And so to address the question, what happens when we die, I want to talk through, first of all, a bit of a theology of death, the story of death. In the scripture, we hate talking about death. Let's just acknowledge that. We don't want to think about it. We don't want to talk about it. We try to ignore it. We try to paper over it. We try to, um, to, to avoid the topic, if at all possible. We, we kind of segregate death to like, um, it used to be very much parts of our home, right? When someone died, the visitation was in the in the in the in the family room and 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 it was it was much more but now we've kind of institutionalized it we've we've tried to we you know we put a lot of makeup on the deceased and say things that are so silly like they look just like themselves like if you ever don't look like yourself it's probably in that moment um so we hate talking about it but it's unavoidable. It's unavoidable. The psalmist says in Psalm 90, help me to number my days that I may live a life of wisdom. Help me to think about that the, the reality is that this life here on earth is limited, that there is a number to my days, that my days are not infinite. They are numbered. I have a, there's a definite number to my days and so help me to think about that so that I would live a life of wisdom. 
that there is wisdom to be gained from thinking about questions like this. So we should start at the beginning. What are the origins, as we're talking about the story of death, what are the origins of death? Well, in Genesis 1 and 2, we have the story of God creating this world. And he creates it very good. He creates all of these things in relationship with himself. The Hebrew word is shalom, that there is peace, there's harmony, there, everything is in rhythm, there's flourishing, everything is right. There is no death. That humanity, is uh, Adam and Eve, are in right relationship with God. They're in right relationship with each other. They're in right relationship with nature all around them. And God uh, has this creation that's wild and untamed, but in the middle of this wild and untamed creation, he creates a garden, calls it Eden. Before Eden was a high school, it was a garden. And he gives... Uh, Adam and Eve, that what we call the cultural mandate. And that's in Genesis 1, verse 28 to 30, where God blessed them, that's Adam and Eve, and said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. God also said, look, I have given you every seed-bearing plant on the surface of the entire earth, and every tree whose fruit contains seed. This will be food for you. For all the wildlife of the earth, for every bird of the sky, every creature that crawls on the earth, everything having breath of life in it, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so, God saw all that he had made and it was very good indeed. He gives this cultural mandate, go and work the ground, go and expand the garden, go and create cities and go and create culture, go and work, be fruitful, fill the earth. And multiply. There was work, but there was no toil, no frustrations. There were no setbacks. But God gave a condition, right? He says, you can eat the fruit of any tree in the garden except the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And you know, Genesis 3, that they do this. They do eat of this fruit. And God had warned them. He says, if you eat of the fruit of that tree, you will surely die. And they sin. They as it were, declared independence from God. And then listen, look at Genesis 3, verse 17. And he said to the man, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree, which, guys, is not a, don't quote me here, don't quote God and say, see, all the problems in the world is because a man listened to his wife. It's not what he's saying. He says, you ate from the tree which I commanded you, do not eat from it. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. Now there's, you'll, it will produce thorns and thistles for you. You'll eat the plants of the fields. There's going to be frustrations now in your work. There's going to be setbacks. It won't always be quite right. It's not in shalom. It's not in rhythm and harmony. You'll eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground since you were taken from it. For you are dust and you will return to dust. You will, in fact, die. And so now, from this day, that day forward, death reigns. Death and sin cannot be separated. That sin has fractured the cosmos. Sin has brought a fracture into the into this world. And that's what death really is. Death is separation. Death brings about a separation of spirit and body. Spiritual death is a separation from God. Eternal death is, is separation from God eternally. You cannot separate sin... In death. A couple of verses, I think they're going to be on the screen here. Ezekiel 18, uh, verse 4. No? 
You got it there, Jason? Ezekiel 18.4. I think it's the third slide. It's okay. I didn't write that one down here in the notes. Ezekiel 18.4. says, look, every life belongs to me. The life of the Father is like the life of the Son. Both belong to me. The person who sins is the one who will die. And Romans 5.12 says that death came into the world through sin by one man. And that, that, that sin has come into the world and death through sin. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. And so we have the origin of death. Secondly, and you can follow along, we got the outline uh, also in your uh, in your bulletin. We have the defeat of death. That death is ruling and reigning in this world, but death is an enemy that has the upper hand, but finally and someone comes and he not only dies, he rises from the dead. And that is of course our Lord Jesus, the Christ the firstborn from the dead. The firstborn from the dead. Which means that he, though he was dead, rose again. And now he is as the first fruits. He's the one who has conquered death and, pre- and provides a way where death as an enemy can be defeated. It changes our perspective on death. He has come and he changes our very perspective on death. And so, three biblical perspectives on death. Number one, God gives us a life. That our life is a gift from God. And so when when we die, it's God pulling back, as it were, taking back to himself the gift he has given with our life here on earth. So, for example, Psalm uh, 104. Turn to Psalm 104. Do we not have any of those scriptures? Oh, okay. Psalm 104, 29. When you hide your face, they're terrified. When you take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. When you take away their breath, they die. God has given us the gift of breath. If you turn to the right a little bit, Ecclesiastes 12. Ecclesiastes 12. It is on page 593. Ecclesiastes 12, 7. And dust returns to the earth as it once was, and the Spirit returns to God who gave it. Our days are numbered. The Paul or in, in Acts, Paul says that he's written our days down in his book. He knows the number of our days. It, we are not owed life. He doesn't owe us this. They are a gift that he's given. And and so, friends, a biblical perspective on death is that no one dies early. No one dies early. Which raises some questions, hard ones, like what about babies? What about some of us have had miscarriages what about what about them the 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 most honest answer is i don't know i i don't know 
But, but no one dies early. We can know that. That our days are written, our life is set out by God, our Creator. And we have hope that at the end of time and at the, in eternity, and we'll wrestle with some of this uh, later on in the series, we'll look back and be able to see that God was right and good. And, and He did cause things to work together for good. That no one dies early. Second perspective on death is that we are finished with our toil and our work. That death means the end of toil and frustrating work. For example, Second Timothy chapter 4. So that's towards the end of the Bible. Second Timothy 4. Page 1056. This is the Apostle Paul writing to one of his um, protégés, Timothy, at the very end of his life. These are like the last words of Paul. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time for my departure is close. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. I've, I've done it. God set out a course for me, and I've finished it. I know I'm about to be beheaded, and I'm done. I'm finished. Or Revelation, which is the last book of the Bible, Revelation 14, 13. Revelation 14 and 13. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, so they will rest from their labors since their works follow them. And so there's a a perspective in the scripture on our death is that it's the end of our toil and the end of our work. It's the end of, of that frustrating aspect of work where, where, you know, if you've ever had a job, right? Never, nothing ever goes totally right all the time, right? Like there's always setbacks and there's always like, you know, especially those of you who are working with people, right? They're hard and they're stubborn and they're kind of, they're hard to, hard to understand sometimes. And there's an end to that which God has set out for us. And the third biblical perspective on death that's really changed by Jesus in many ways is, is that it's a surrendering of our spirit back to God. And Jesus, of course, sets uh, the example for us as he's dying on the cross in Luke 23, 46, he, he speaks out, he says, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And uh, and Stephen, we spoke on this a few months ago in Acts 7:59, says something very, very similar. He says, into your, into your hands, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And so it's a death is a surrendering, surrendering of our spirit back to God. We know that it will not separate us from God's love. Romans 8:38, right? Nothing in all creation, neither life or death, dot dot dot, will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Jesus Christ. Our Lord, we, we know that death for a follower of Jesus is not punishment. It's, you're, you don't die because you're being punished by God, because Romans 8, 1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus has taken all of the penalty, all of the condemnation, all of the punishment for all of your sin. Yes, the wages of sin is death, but Jesus paid those wages for you. And so your death is not 
punishment. We do not view death as punishment from God. Death is the, is the reality that we still live in a fallen, broken world where the curse of sin has not yet fully been removed. And yet it's through death, through our physical death, that God actually finishes that work, that process, that as theology we call sanctification, becoming more and more like Jesus, becoming more and more holy and pure. He finishes that work. Our, the experience of our salvation in this life is still incomplete. We are fully and completely saved, but our experience of it is incomplete, and he completes it through our death. You see, the last enemy to be destroyed, according to the New Testament, is death. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And so we live in the already, but the not yet of the kingdom of God. That we're already saved, but we're not yet fully saved. The kingdom of God is already ushered in, but it's not yet fully ushered in. All right, so three biblical perspectives on death, but a fourth. D, there's permission to mourn. There's permission, there's encouragement even to mourn when a loved one dies. As followers of Jesus, sometimes we get um, a little trite and speak in cliches. And we try to paper over some things. And we feel like, man, to, I've lost a loved one, uh, but I have hope. I have hope of glory. I, uh, I know that... Um, that my loved one is with Jesus. I know they're in heaven. And we'll talk about what that means in a minute. Um, and so I can only feel happiness and joy. No, it's okay to mourn. Do you know why I know that? Jesus had a friend, John chapter 11. Jesus had a friend who was sick. His name was Lazarus. And it says Jesus loved Lazarus. So therefore, because Jesus loved Lazarus, he waited and let, it, let him die. He waited to come to Lazarus so that he wouldn't heal him and let him die. Which is um, paradigm altering, that little word so, or therefore, because of his love, he let Lazarus die. And Jesus was come, did that so that he could demonstrate his power over death and, and, and put on display the fact that he has power over death and was going to raise Lazarus, which is a picture, friends, of you and I, if we're followers of Jesus, when we die, again, one day it was coming when we will be raised. Lazarus's death and resurrection is meant for us to be a picture of our own. And so Jesus is in that in-between stage, between death and resurrection. And he comes into Bethany, the hometown of Mary and Martha, who were the sisters of Lazarus, and and uh, he's interacting with Mary and Martha, and he comes to the, to the grave, and it says Jesus was deeply troubled. It means he, it's like the, the, the Greek word there is like there's this uh, anger. Like there's, he's roaring, he's ferocious, like inside, like, Ugh, this isn't right. This isn't how I made things to be in the beginning. And then, the shortest verse in the entire scripture is what? Jesus wept. He was grieved. He mourned. He knew, the, he knew that in ten minutes Lazarus was going to be walking out of the grave. And yet he wept. We know that the day is coming when our loved one who's in the ground is going to rise again. But in the in-between, we have this permission to mourn. And more than permission, we, we are encouraged to grieve. 
and to mourn. And so we don't have to pretend to be super spiritual and be, and just, and paper over and, and cliche, and speaking cliches and, 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 and ignore our, some of our emotions and, and all of that. We can actually mourn the temporary loss of a loved one, the separation that we now experience for a time. And then really the last perspective and the overarching perspective is that Jesus sets us free from the fear of death. Jesus sets us free from the fear of death. In John chapter 8, a couple of uh, chapters back from this uh, episode with Lazarus, it's one of my favorite uh, interactions that Jesus has with religious leaders because it's just so aggressive. And, and I'm not actually like that, so I kind of like... Pretend, I think I want to be aggressive like Jesus and them, and, and yet I'm kind of a, a coward in, in um, interpersonal relationships most of the time. But I kind of emulate, I, I kind of look up to it and be like, man, that's awesome. So the, the encounter begins this way. The Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, come up to Jesus and say, uh, so isn't it true that you're a half-breed and uh, demon-possessed? <laughs> that's like, that's their opening line. Jesus, isn't it true that you're a Samaritan half-breed possessed by a demon. And Jesus is, it says, no. In fact, my father, I don't care what you think about me. You can think that about me all you want, but my father in heaven is going to glorify me and will glorify everyone who follows me. And he says these words in John chapter 8. He says, whoever keeps my word will never see death. They... Um, they kind of respond and say, like, how could you say that whoever believes in you will never taste death? And they, so they, they change the word from see to taste, but Jesus doesn't correct them. He gives them taste. And, and their, their whole thing is like, well, Abraham died and David died. Are you greater than them? And he's like, yep. I'm, in fact, their God, the one who made them, who pre-existed before them who is the self-existent Yahweh I am. So it's, you know, it's this great interaction. But for, our, our, uh, for the point this morning, I just want to say that Jesus is saying, when we keep his word, we'll talk about that. what that means in a moment, we'll not see death, we'll not taste death. What does that mean? What does that mean? That followers of Christ, those who are united to God through faith in Jesus, aren't going to see death, won't taste death little speculation. I like to think, so this isn't inspired right now, I like to think it means that just before we go, Jesus maybe sends an angel, maybe he comes himself and is like, hey Kevin, let's get out of here. We don't need to see this. Let's go. I've had the uh, just the absolute privilege and honor of, of being around the bedsides of Dozens of people who've passed away. Probably not as many as some of you work in the healthcare profession, but um, as a pastor, just one of the great privileges I have is to be welcomed into that sacred space as um, as people breathe their last. And honestly, usually there's a smile. And they're gone. And I've often wondered, what is it? They're, they're not, 
Here's death. I'm seeing death, but they're not tasting death. They're not seeing death. They're gone. They're gone. That's what I think. I could be wrong on that. But I do know he sets us free from the fear of death. Because look at Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. This is a great, really foundational passage for us this morning as we're talking about what happens when we die. Hebrews chapter 2, beginning of verse 14. That's on the screen. Nice. Since the children have flesh and blood in common. Who's the children? You and me. All of us have a mom or a dad. We have flesh, we have blood in common. Jesus also shared in these. He came in flesh and blood. That's what we've just celebrated at Christmas. So that through his death, he might destroy the one holding the power of death. That's the devil. And free those who were held in slavery all their lives by what? By the fear of death. He's come to set us free from the slavery of the fear of death. It's what Jesus came to do. That's why he came, to set us free from the fear of death and slavery from the, that fear. You, we do not have to try to manipulate and control everything out of fear. I hope that this, even just these couple of minutes so far, would even free us up to live, to enjoy the life that is, our, that is a gift from God. And to know that we're not going to leave early, we're not going to stay late. And that nothing comes to our life that doesn't first pass through the hands of our Father in heaven. And speaking of heaven, let's talk about heaven. And so point number two, so first I wanted to talk about the story of death in the scripture and how Jesus really transforms our perspective on death. I want to talk about the present heaven. Well, why do you say the phrase present heaven? Why not just say heaven? Well, I think there's some misunderstandings about this. This might be new material for some of you. Um, And so love to chat with you about that if this is new but the questions what's heaven like and what in w- the question what will heaven be like are different questions and different answers what is heaven like versus what will heaven be like are different questions with different answers the present heaven is where christians go when they die now and that is a temporary stop on the journey to the final destination the final destination uh, we can read about in Revelation 21. So, I don't want this to be the word of Kevin. This is the word of God. Revelation 21. Right at the very end. Page 1103. So, if you're having trouble finding that, start at the back and go back a couple pages. Revelation 21. I saw a new heaven. Oh. So, there's an old heaven. There's a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven... And the first earth had what? Passed away, and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them and will be their guide. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more grief. 
Crying and pain will be no more because the previous things had passed away. So there's the first heaven and the first earth, and there's a new heaven and a new earth. And so the the first heaven is where we believe people go when they die now. The future heaven, the second heaven, the new heavens, is the new creation that will be ushered in at the return of Jesus. Great book on this topic, just called Heaven, Randy Alcorn. I'm going to read a a quote here um, on this. He says, I concur with theologian Anthony Hokema, good Dutch guy, who writes, The new Jerusalem does not remain in a heaven far off in space, but it comes down to the renewed earth. There, the redeemed, that's those who've been saved by Jesus, will spend eternity in resurrection bodies. So heaven and earth, now separated, will then be merged. The new earth will also be heaven, since God will dwell there with his people. Glorified believers, in other words, will continue to be in heaven while they are inhabiting the new earth. So that's the Hokema quote. Elkhorn continues, he says, that God would come down to the new earth to live with us fits perfectly with his original plan. God could have taken Adam and Eve up to heaven to visit with him in his world. Instead, before the fall, he came down to walk with them in their world. Jesus says, of anyone who would be his disciple, my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him, John 14. This is a picture of God's ultimate plan, not to take us up to live in a realm made for him, but to come down and live with us in the realm he made for us. All right, so there's this difference, there's this distinction between the present heaven and the final heaven, the eternal heaven. And so Elkhorn uses that phrase, present heaven, I'm borrowing it from him. So the present heaven, first of all, is a place It's a place. Jesus says, John 14, I am going to prepare a place for you. The resurrected Jesus with his resurrected physical body is right now, as we speak, in heaven, in that place. The the scriptures continually speak of heaven as a place. It's a place that we reach up to, that is above us. We reach up to heaven and God comes down from heaven. He looks down from heaven. Psalm eighty fourteen says, Look down from heaven and see. Psalm 102, 19, that speaks of God looking down from his holy heights. Jesus in John chapter 6 talks about himself as the bread of heaven that comes down to earth. Elijah, 2 Kings 2, verse 1, was taken up into heaven. Luke 18, 13 uh, the, uh, Jesus telling a story of, a, of a, a tax collector who raises his eyes up to heaven. Jesus, as in his ascension, Acts chapter 1, is taken up into heaven. So heaven is a place. Secondly, heaven is remote. It's remote. It's distant. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 12 the love chapter, for now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, but then face to face. I know in part, but then I will know fully as I am fully known. The New Testament often speaks about us of having a veil, that there's a veil that's 
that's between us and heaven. Jesus tells a parable um, of a rich man and Lazarus. I mean, there's a chasm. There's uh, Revelation 4. There's a door to heaven. There's a door that's usually closed that's been opened for John to come in and, and observe. Revelation 19, he sees heaven opened before him, but usually it's closed. Which you might say, well, so it's, it's a place, but it's remote. Is it part of our universe? Is it here in our universe? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Scientists, leading scientists today at all the great universities, uh, believe in at least ten observable, di- unobservable dimensions. So, right, we've got like length, width, height. Three dimensions. We live in a three-dimensional world. But really to make sense of, uh, of what's going on scientifically, uh, scientists, and I, when I, I have a pure math degree, and we often worked in the nth dimension, infinite number of dimensions, because in order to make a lot of this stuff work, it doesn't work if there's only three dimensions. Scientists are even beginning to believe in a multiverse, that there isn't just one universe, there's multiple universes. And so maybe heaven is in a universe next door. We don't. No, we don't know. We saw. We know that Stephen saw heaven opened up before him. He saw a spiritual dimension of reality. So there's a place, but it's remote. It's veiled. It's got a door, and it's you can't quite. You know, it's not a place that, like the Russians when they sent their cosmonauts up to space, right? And he returned. He's like, I checked. There's no heaven. It's not a place you can get to with a spacecraft. You say, well, is it a physical place? Well, Jesus' physical body is there. Some, you know, Elkhorn tries to make the point, and I'm not sure I believe him, that uh, uh, people who are in heaven have some sort of a physical body because they have a, we, they're pictured as having a tongue and they're speaking, and so they must have a body and they're wearing clothes, and so they must have a body, but... What's what's literal and what's figurative, that's hard to decipher sometimes in the scripture. So we, that's, what, that's some things we know about heaven, that it's a place, that it's remote. Second, thirdly, it's a place of value and splendor and beauty. It's described to us as a place of value. Streets are paved with, the sea is made of crystal or glass. The gates are made of Pearls, right? The pearly gates. So is that literal or is that figurative? But the point is that what we value here, crystal, gold, pearls, is so common there. It's like water. It's like bricks. It's like asphalt. What we value, there's, it's a place of value. It's a place of splendor. There's no sun needed. There's light. It's a place of purity that's vastly superior to our current reality. We live it with washed robes, white garments, fine linen. The foul side of our present world does not exist there. The foul side is not there. It's mysterious. D, Lee, D, point D, that would be four. Mysterious. Ezekiel chapter one. Alright, so, we have all this revelation, and I think often it's meant to demonstrate that we, we don't quite get it. I'll show you what I mean. If you try to picture some of the things that are described in heaven, 
Uh, you might have nightmares. Or <laughs> your, your mind might go crazy. Let's listen to Ezekiel 1, beginning of verse 4. Let's read this. Uh, that's on page 734. I looked, and there was a whirlwind coming from the north, a huge cloud with fire flashing back and forth and brilliant light all around it. In the center of the fire, there was a gleam like amber. The likeness of four living creatures came from it. And this was their appearance. So let's try to picture this one of this creature. They looked something like a human, but each of them had four faces and four wings. No one's laughing. That's funny. It looks like a human with four faces and four wings. Like, are those two things not really different? But each of them had four faces and four wings. Their legs were straight, and the soles of their feet were like the hooves of a calf, sparkling like the gleam of polished bronze. They had human hands under their wings, okay, on their four sides. All four of them had faces and wings. Their wings were touching. The creatures did not turn as they moved. Each one went straight ahead. Their faces looked something like the face of a human, and each of the four had the face of a lion on the right, or the face of an ox on the left, and the face of an eagle. Okay. That's what their faces were like. Their wings were spread upward. Each had two wings touching that of the another and two wings covering its body. Each creature went straight ahead. Wherever the spirit wanted to go, they went without turning as they moved. So could you try to draw this? No, right? Like, there's some mystery to this. There's some mystery. There is some grandeur and some greatness that's kind of beyond maybe what our eye can picture. Again, kids, maybe one of you want to draw, try to draw the, the creatures of Ezekiel chapter 1. Then take on the wheels, the wheels that follow in Ezekiel chapter 1. They have eyes all around the rims. and Yeah, it's crazy stuff. So there's a pla- all this to say is there, heaven is a place of mystery. Second, or uh, E, 5, it's a place of joy and satisfaction. It's a place of joy and satisfaction. Look at Revelation 7. 16, 17, this is Revelation before the resurrection, so the present heaven, Revelation 7, 16 and 17, they, that's people in heaven, will no longer hunger, they'll no longer thirst, the sun will no longer strike them, nor will any scorching heat. We can only hope that there will also be no biting cold of January winters. For the Lamb who is at the center of the throne will shepherd them. He will guide them to springs of waters of life. And God will wipe away every tear from their eye. It's a place of great joy. There is no more death. There is no more mourning. No more sadness. No more hatred. No more oppression. No more cruelty. All of that, the old things are done away with. And it's a place of life. It's a place of satisfaction. It's a place where you can finally scratch the itch that you're trying to scratch all of this life. And then lastly, heaven, the present heaven is the place where we will be with Jesus and that's what makes heaven heaven. It's a place where we will be with Jesus. Jesus himself says to the thief hanging beside him on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. Today you'll be with me in heaven. Paul in Philippians chapter 1 says, right, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Why? He says, 
there's all this work left for me to do here, but I desire to depart and be with Christ because that's better by far. I want to go and be with Jesus. Second Corinthians 5 verse 8 says, he, Paul says he prefers to be away from the body and therefore at home with the Lord. And so we have a conscious spiritual existence where we talk and where we worship. We know that um, those who have gone ahead of us into heaven are aware of some things that are happening here on earth. But friends, the bottom line is that on the day when you breathe your last, if you follow Christ, if you've received what he's done for you, if you keep his word, you'll be with Jesus. You will be with Jesus. And on that day, no obedience to Jesus will seem excessive. No sacrifice made for following Christ will seem not worth it. All of the sufferings of this present time will not even be worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to you. And so, friends, as the author of the book of Hebrews says, we look for a better country whose maker and builder is the Lord. And so we don't have to live in fear of death because it will only make you better. We do not have to live in the fear of death. And I must say to friends, if you're not a follower of Jesus, if you haven't trusted in him, heavens for those not who are good enough, because none of us are. Heavens for those for whom Jesus has lived the life we should have lived and died the death we should have died. The good news is that you can go to heaven. The good news for you today is that it's for you. And you're welcome. You're welcome there. You're welcome to have that hope. You're invited to live with that joy and expectation. And so I urge you today to close with Jesus, to close the deal, to come to him, to trust him, to be your savior, to give your heart to him, to receive all that he's done for you. If you have questions about that, we would just love to chat with you, walk with you through that. And so would you pray with me? Father in heaven, would you fill us with great joy and hope and expectation? We praise you, Father. We praise you that death, though an enemy, is a defeated enemy. That is the last enemy that will be defeated. And so, Jesus, we praise you as the conqueror of death. As the one who has set us free from the fear of death. To live with joy and hope now. And to free us up, even to make a difference in this world, because of we know what's coming next. We're not living for ourselves anymore. We're living for you, and we're living for the good of others. So Holy Spirit, come and seal these things in our hearts. Encourage us with what we need to be encouraged with. Challenge us and with what we need to be challenged with. As we continue to worship you now in Jesus' great name, amen.
Every Sunday we have a connection time. There's coffee out back. It's an opportunity to connect together. Get your kids 